You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 20th of February 2023 on Monocle 24, The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, this week it will have been a year since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. We look back at 12 months of war and three Ukrainians share their memories of the country before the conflict. I think it's definitely the, the most beautiful place, you know, if you really bring somebody to Kiev and want to show it. Then we'll hear how Poland has risen to the challenge of protecting its neighbour and listen to a conversation recorded at the Munich Security Conference on how NATO's priorities have changed since the 24th of February. We'll have a look at what the front pages are covering, have a roundup of aviation news, plus... And the BAFTA goes to... We'll join in vicariously with Britain's biggest red carpet bash of the year. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. Now, later this week, it will have been a year since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Lada Ruslicki is the founder of Black Trident, a defence and security consulting group in Ukraine, and has been updating us here on Monocle 24 since the early days of the war. Lada, there will be much media analysis of the past year over the next few days, and I'd really like you to, to, to look back to the 24th of February 2022 and see how the situation locally and globally has changed. But let's begin with the latest updates. We hear that Ukraine's military is inflicting extraordinarily significant losses on Russian forces in the eastern Donbass region. Can you tell us more? Uh, Yes, the latest reports is that even yesterday about uh, 1,000 Russians have been uh, eliminated. But the flow is continuous and the battles that are taking place in Luhansk and Donetsk areas are 24 hours a day nonstop. We have to remember that just because we're not hearing the numbers about the Ukrainian losses, Ukrainians are suffering uh, major losses as well. It's an extremely violent uh, situation that we're facing. And with the upcoming anniversary, everybody is uh, very, very tense and and not really sure what, what the Kremlin has in store for us uh, Just this week. Looking back a, a year before the start of the invasion, how seriously was the threat of a, of a full Russian invasion taken in Ukraine? Well, it was taken pretty seriously. It was um, the lack of information and, la- and, and purposeful downplaying of the war that uh, caused so much panic in, in the end. And even a year ago, at this time, the people who I, I was with, uh, I would say about 70% of us knew that uh, there is going to be a war. Russia wasn't just uh, amassing so many of its men and firepower around the borders to, for nothing. So that um, yeah, was pretty obvious. Mm. Are you surprised at how Vladimir Zelensky's handled the situation? Do you think his visibility at home and internationally was unexpected? I think that 
his role continues to be a very good spokesman for Ukraine, and uh, the world needs to listen to what he's saying. That having been said, we also have to really be, uh, be happy that we're having heightened uh, monitoring and control systems in place to really uh, keep an eye on what is really happening on the ground here mm. in Ukraine. How do you rate the reactions of NATO countries since a year ago? Uh, very poorly. Well, NATO countries separately uh, very well, except for Hungary and uh, and European Union countries that are starting to pull in pull up together is, is, in the recent weeks is really great. Mm. But NATO as a whole has a very blemished and tarnished reputation in in the eyes of most Ukrainians because uh, we're seeing it as a w- very weak institution that is having a very difficult time. Uh, doing anything in a united fashion. And that, of course, is serving the Kremlin. Mm. Do you think that Russia is recognised now by the world as a common enemy to democracy? Yes, I think it is going to continue uh, developing that way. The fact that Russia was not uh, invited to the Munich Security Conference this weekend is also quite significant. Uh, It indicates that the West is starting to mature in its understanding that uh, there are certain countries that uh, that you cannot negotiate with on, on peaceful and democratic terms. Now, you have a, a great piece in the Kyiv Post about disinformation and corruption. How wide does that net from the Kremlin spread? It's global. And I think that it's extremely important that the... Uh, particularly the allies in the West that gather together and start arresting publicly holding individuals that are serving the Kremlin's political criminal nexus abroad uh, accountable. These people need to be shown uh, that the rule of law exists, that it's not a joke. Treason uh, and corrupt treason uh, really deserves punishment on the, on the highest level to prevent further participation uh, in, in Russia's network. And how much of that is organized crime? Uh, well, if you look at corruption as or as an element of organized crime, then it's all corrupt. And uh, if we don't, uh, I think that perhaps maybe 15 to 20 percent of the post-Soviet uh, criminal network abroad are really people who just don't know better. Uh, but the money, the corruption, the influence, the lobby work uh, is is all connected to financing. And this financing is uh, in place to promote Russia's foreign policy, even if it pertains to uh, music or opera or, or Black Lives Matters, as had been mentioned in the article. Mm. Uh, what about corruption in Ukraine itself? We know that before the war, it had a very bad reputation for that. Is that being stamped out? There have been some quite visible uh, uh, actions taken. Visible actions are being taken, however, it's not enough. And yes, Ukraine, the the level of tolerance within society uh, for those who are are corrupt uh, has significantly uh, lowered in the past year. However, it continues, and if it's not going to be uh, eliminated or actually lessened, because you'll never be able to eliminate corruption, uh, then Ukraine really stands another major internal threat. And that's where people are going to start uh, taking the law into their own hands if the current authorities don't start literally putting people behind bars. 
it's important to note that today is the ninth anniversary of the Maidan Revolution. And a significant amount, the great majority of the individuals in the cases who were brought against the men who were killing Ukrainian citizens have been stalled. And virtually nobody has been put into prison. And the Ukrainians, as patient as they may be, at a certain point, their, their temperament will lead to, to action uh, to, to implement justice. How do do you think the international idea then of who Ukrainians are and what Ukraine is has changed? Uh, It's changed because people know that Ukraine isn't in Russia and that Ukrainians aren't Russians and that Ukrainians are Europeans. Uh, However, the Ukrainian vision can, can become much better. Ukraine really needs to show the world uh, that civilization is something that we share and that we uh, depend on with each other. The Ukrainians are, are fighting, we're dying. I mean, we're literally being genocided. We're facing a massive uh, emergency with the Kakhovka Reservoir where it's very likely that 70% of Ukrainians will have no access to water, drinking water, because of what the Russians are doing. So while the vision of Ukraine as, as a symbol of light is certainly there, uh, it's up against a, a framework of, of very dark death and, and fear. Mm. And I mean, it's not just the, the loss of life, but the loss of communities. A, a whole sections of society have, have left. I mean, how is that playing out within the country when, when, when the social fabric uh, would appear to be crumbling? It's the social fabric has. It's almost as if as though we have changed the actual material the fabric is made of. So the people on the ground in in Ukraine are very very close, tight knitted, extremely patient, uh, which is which is amazing. However, there's a certain type of sadness, and it's very it penetrates the walls of buildings. Uh, it, there's no celebrating in in Ukraine. And uh, the victory that we're facing, we have no doubt that uh, our our losses are going to be very, very high. How would you judge the strength of the Russian army now as compared to a year ago? I think that we should never underestimate uh, the enemy. And although they have lost uh, up to 100,000 men in this war, we see some collaboration uh, having arisen with uh, the Iranians, which is now starting to have a little bit of a problem with with Israel, uh, as we saw with the recent bombings there. We see this uh, saber rattling again with China, uh, considering providing uh, Russia with lethal arms to kill us. And the recent statements from the U.S. representative to the United Nations claiming that should China do this, we're going to, it's going to cross a red line. Red lines have unfortunately become a joke in our international uh, community since Syria, I would say. So the Russians are strong. They have not changed their policy of just throwing their men like meat onto the meat grinder. It was done in World War One, World War Two. They they don't change. Technology is is quite frightening. They do have. Uh, radio uh, machinery, radio warfare technology that uh, we're, we're quite concerned about being used, let alone the tactical nuclear weapons, which, which are on the table. Uh, and Lada, finally, how has your own life changed? 
um, I see beauty everywhere I go, and uh, there's just a perfection within the human being that astounds me and makes me full of joy and more determined. But it's very lonely. It's, a, it's, it's an extremely lonely place to be in the world. Lada, thank you very much indeed. That's Lada Roslicki there. Now, all this week, we're running a special series on Monocle 24, looking at Ukraine and how the conflict has disrupted lives, society and the country ahead of the one-year anniversary this Friday. Before Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, places like Kiev, Bucha and Kherson were not known for missile strikes or trench warfare, but as lively cities and stunning holiday spots. For episode one, Monocle's Lillian Fawcett spoke to three Ukrainians about some of their fondest memories of their country from before the conflict. Eliana Klivko begins this report speaking about childhood summers spent harvesting watermelons in Kherson. We had a whole watermelon farm and, and that was quite common enterprise for some Ukrainians back in the day um, when you were trying to make an extra income. My name is Alona Halivko. I am a political consultant currently based at Atticus Partners in London, formerly an MP in Ukraine and a participant of Ukrainian politics for over 13 years. So my grandmother and grandfather initially started that farm. They bought it off of someone else. And ever since then, every summer has become a trip for us to work on the farm, essentially, but also have some days off and travel to the beach because it was further down from the Black Sea and enjoy our summers in the sun. And the watermelons have really become quite symbolic for Ukraine. And I think that symbol has surpassed the borders after the liberation of Kherson, when you could have seen that Ukrainian authorities were referring to watermelons so much and the media was putting that up as a logo everywhere. So the quickest, most efficient way to get your whole family, which would be, you know, my mom, dad, my brother, and then my grandparents, was to all pack into two cars and go on this little road trip. Sometimes, actually, because we're based in southwest of Ukraine, near the Carpathian Mountains, there were two routes to take. Um, If we were going via Odessa, for example, we would go through Moldova, And back then we could travel without any border restrictions, essentially. Or you had to go all the way around through all the regions in Ukraine, and that could take up to 24 hours, if not more than that. Sometimes we would stop on the way, camp out just in some forests and woods and really explore Ukraine. And those trips were quite significant because I think, you know, those are the memories that you really carry on for the rest of your life. Some interactions uh, with your family, trying to keep the two kids entertained um, on such a long trip is, of course, a tricky one. But that's when we learned all of our games that had anything to do with languages. We would sing our songs. Uh, That's where I learned most of Ukrainian folk songs. Just my grandmother and, and my mom trying to occupy us. My name is Natalia Humenyuk. I'm a Ukrainian journalist. I, I'm based and I live in Kiev. 
Kiev is probably today one of the most vibrant cities in Central Europe. There are around 4 million people who live in Kiev. It's generally, when you really try to describe it, the first things which are coming to your mind is saying like how green it is because there is a huge river separating the Kiev for two banks and there are incredible amount of the parks and trees and churches. Especially within the last year, especially after the Euromaidan revolution, I think it became very, you know, very hype city. You know, it has probably one of the most known techno discos in the country. There was, you know, uh, quite a extraordinary restaurant business going on. The area near St. Sophia Cathedral and Hailevsky Cathedral, it's like the oldest part of the city. Uh, where there are a couple of churches, but also it's quite a hipsterish neighborhood. It became like that, but also historic. It's a bit on the hill over the over the river. I think it's definitely the, the most beautiful place. You know, if you really bring somebody to Kiev and want to show it, I think due to numerous reasons, uh, we Ukrainians have a bit of the habit of complain all the time and dislike things and find the, the troubles, small problems in everything. But I think uh, what I heard from many people, including from myself, that's how I feel, we all started to, you know, like appreciate it more. I think like everybody think like, you know, like I maybe didn't like it enough. I, I didn't see how pretty it is. I, I didn't didn't understand how precious every building is, uh, every street or so. My name is Olga Tokaryuk and I'm a Ukrainian journalist and I'm currently based in Oxford in the UK. I used to live in Kyiv for 20 years and that's the city where my daughter was born. Her name is Lubava and she's seven years old. And one of our favorite spots to go on the weekend was a park in Bucha, in a little town close to Kyiv, Kyiv suburb, very easy to reach, very green, very fast developing. So we would go there on the weekends and stroll in the parks and enjoy the scenery and enjoy also the proximity of a, of a river, of water. She would play on the playgrounds and we would just people watch and admire how quickly this tiny little town was developing. And so many Kyiv residents actually started to move there in the last years because the quality of life there was much better than in the capital. It was greener, it was smaller, it was very easy to reach. So then, of course, seeing what Russians have done to Bucha during the invasion and all the atrocities that were committed there, and people killed and houses burned, that, of course, you know, was very shocking and striking because that's not how I remembered that town and knowing that now it is different was so shocking. But then I know that it is rebuilding. It is rebuilding very fast. And I really hope that we will be able to return to Bucha with my family and with my daughter and enjoy the beauty of this town again. Although, of course, there will be scars. And I think in the park that we used to visit, there will be a memorial to all the civilians who were killed in this town. Many thanks there to Olga, Natalia and Aliona uh, for sharing their memories. 
UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Let's now turn to Ukraine's neighbour, Poland, which has really come to the defence of Kyiv, more so, it would seem, than any other NATO member. As the US president heads to Warsaw, let's examine the country's growing importance. And to do that, we're joined by Michael Bunyan, foreign affairs specialist for The Times, and Michal Baranowski, who is a senior fellow and director of the German Marshall Fund's Warsaw office. Uh, Michael Bunyan, if we could start with you, what are the ways in which Poland has risen to the challenge of the war next? door? Well, first of all, it's taken in an enormous number of Ukrainian refugees. Uh, right at the start of the war, when most of the people fled, uh, they opened their borders and they've taken in about, uh, well, well over one million people. And they've uh, housed them and uh, fed them and allowed them to integrate and settle as much as possible in Polish society. And then they back this up with military reinforcements Uh, They are spending up to or plan to spend 4% of their budget on their army. They're increasing the size of the army enormously. Uh, They are making uh, tanks. Well, they say when the time comes, they will allow tanks to cross into Ukraine. They've already sent an enormous amount of arms. And Poland is the principal conduit through which nearly all Western aid is challenged, uh, sorry, is channeled to uh, Ukraine. Mm. Uh, Michal, uh, Poland's president has just been in Britain to commemorate the Polish airmen who died fighting for the Allies in the Second World War. How is he received and is there a sense that this current situation has parallels with that struggle against occupation? It's great to be with you. Yes, the war in Ukraine uh, is seen in many ways also because the way that Russia is fighting it sim- in a similar terms to World War II, of course, in a different different scale, but the loss of life uh, and the the methods used by the Russian uh, the Russian army is uh, is similar. It's you know Poland has focused so much on the on the support of Ukraine because we see it as our war. It's you you said this is the war next door. But we also understand that what stands between us, our borders, and Russian tanks is this strong, brave Ukrainian army, um, and that's also very much connected to the to the spirit that uh, that we have seen um, in in World War Two. Um, so lots of similarities, and unfortunately, this also brings memories of this of this traumatic times, and this is also why the openness that that Michael talked about, um, actually 2 million uh, Ukrainians have settled in, in Poland. And over the over the last um, year, 8 million uh, Ukrainian refugees crossed Polish borders, many of them going further yeah, into Western Europe, some of them going back to Ukraine with this huge openness uh, from the from the Polish society, which we basically see them as our brothers and sisters uh, in arms at this point. Mm. Uh, Michael, I wonder if Poland is stepping up because, I mean, obviously, geographically, it's relevant, but because the Franco-German axis is crumbling. Well, I wouldn't say the axis is crumbling completely. I mean, Poland feels uh, uh, impatient that... Uh, 
France and Germany haven't done much, and they particularly feel that they've been too long wasting their time trying to negotiate with uh, Putin, that the French are still uh, holding out the possibility of a negotiated settlement uh, done with uh, Putin uh, that might involve some territorial changes. And the Poles have no patience with that at all. They say that that isn't the way. You can't trust Putin. You need to actually rebuff his aggression. And only then, when you've actually regained the territory lost, can uh, any kind of uh, arrangement or settlement be, uh, be, be contemplated. Uh, so I think the Poles do feel also that the delay in the Western decision whether or not to send tanks, and now, of course, there's a discussion about whether or not to send fighter aircraft, they feel that uh, what's needed is help right now and that Poland, therefore, must step up to the plate and provide it. Mm. And Michael, though, what are the risks to Poland for taking such a strong stand? Well, if Poland was not part of NATO, we um, we would be in a terrible risk um, because about 80% of the military aid, 80 or even 90% of the aid going to Ukraine goes through one city, one airport um, uh, in in Poland, Rzeszów. Um, but because we are in NATO, because American troops are there and it's also area protected by by a number of patriot systems, uh, we feel confident that we can uh, lean forward in uh, in helping in helping Ukraine. I do not think that Poland is in any uh, real danger from from Russia because Putin understands very well that um, he would very quickly lose war with with NATO, and there is no question. Uh, that NATO as a whole would come and would have to and would come to the defense of Poland or the Baltic states if something like that happened. In fact, this is a message that I'm sure President Biden will reinforce during his visit and the speech here uh, tomorrow. Yes, I mean, so Joe Biden is in Poland this week. Michael, what else do we expect him to say? Well, I think we'll expect him to say that America itself remains steadfast and is increasing its aid. I mean, America has been overwhelmingly the largest NATO uh, supplier of help, arms and everything else for Poland, uh, more than $18 million in humanitarian aid uh, and plenty more as well. Uh, And that America, sorry, 18 billion, I think I should have said, yes. And that uh, America has done uh, more than anyone else and is ready to continue helping uh, the West, uh, NATO and Poland in particular, uh, supply Ukraine with what it needs. Mm. Uh, Mikhail, do you think Joe Biden's likely to cross the border to Ukraine? Mm-hmm. It's an excellent question. Um, so far, n- even the meetings with, meeting with President Zelensky has not been uh, announced. Everyone uh, is expecting it. Um, I actually think that would be an, a, a great opportunity for President Zelensky to come to Warsaw for the first time since the war started, also because um, leaders of the Bucharest Nine of of the whole Eastern flank are here to meet with President Biden. Uh, And I think it will be a a really an an important um, message and and a picture of seeing President Zelensky, President Duda and all the other leaders of the Eastern flank listening to the speech of of Biden um, uh, tomorrow. Um, My colleagues 
there are rumors of potentially President uh, Biden uh, crossing into into Ukraine. Although my colleagues uh, from the diplomatic, from the American diplomatic service, uh, basically tell me that the uh, risks are very high of doing something like this. Some might even see it as a bit of a provocation. So my guess is that he will not uh, go to to Ukraine, but we'll we'll find out. Uh, pretty soon, whether that's that's the case. Mm. Michael, do you think Europe's expecting too much from Washington? I mean, for instance, we've talked about the F-16 fighter jets. Might they crumble to pressure and supply those? And when will we see the level of support from other NATO countries equal that of Poland? Can the war be won without it? Well, that's a difficult question. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about supplying these fighter jets but uh, there is some reluctance to do so. First of all, because it would mean that the uh, Western air forces that have them at the moment would would, would be de- denuded of them. Uh, there are these jets around, but also there's the realization that a lot more is involved. If you supply the jets, you have to train the pilots, and that takes quite a long time. Britain has started doing that. Uh, you also have to uh, provide an enormous amount of spare parts and material and it would be quite a long time before these jets can be used and flown by Ukrainian pilots. I mean, what Ukraine probably needs much more urgently are the uh, old Soviet MiG fighter planes, because they use those themselves. They know how to fly them. They could be deployed straight away. Uh, but that would mean, I mean, Poland, right at the start of the conflict, did suggest that it could send its own MiG fighters uh, as long as NATO supplied replacement uh, Western jets for the Polish Air Force. Now, that idea seems to have, have stalled a bit. And I think there's, we're not going to see these fighter jets arrive in uh, Ukraine for some time. Mm. Uh, and, and finally, Michal, what's the mood in Poland as it prepares to, to welcome Biden? Mm-hmm. Um, w- one is a mood of, of um, defiance, I would say, in a face of of Putin, and you know, it's really quite striking that um, having seen a really a big influx of of water refugees, people are very still very supportive of Ukraine. So there is defiance and a and a willingness to to stay in this for a long term. Um, uh, people are feeling special and proud to see President Biden visit Poland for the second time in uh, in less than a year. Um, uh, and there is, you know, but there is also, I, I would, I would, you know, I do have to say that there is an element of fear that, uh, permeates the, the society because the war is actually relatively close, uh, and we are being reassured and, and also, uh, as we talked, Poland is going to be spending 4% on military and, and military modernization is going fast. But we have a feeling that this is a long-term conflict that will be the frontline state for a long time to come. So this anxiety is also something that is mixed with all the other more positive emotions uh, on the eve of Biden's visit. Michal, thank you very much indeed. That's Michal Baranowski. And we were also speaking to Michael Binion. Here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Kim Yo-jung, the sister of North Korea's supreme leader, has warned the United States to halt military drills under threat of turning the Pacific into a firing range. North Korea has been launching ballistic missiles over the weekend, prompting the US to hold joint air exercises with South Korea and also Japan. 
At least 36 people have been killed in the Brazilian state of Sao Paulo by heavy flooding and landslides. More fatalities have occurred elsewhere in the region, forcing some carnival celebrations to be cancelled, and $1.5 million to aid disaster relief has been released by the state governor. And an Australian university professor of archaeology has been taken hostage in Papua New Guinea, along with several students. The country's Prime Minister, James Marape, told local reporters the military is on standby and the situation is currently at a crucial moment. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, global leaders descended on Germany for the Munich Security Conference, the world's leading forum for debating the most pressing challenges in international security. Amongst the attendees, Benedetta Berti Alberti, who is head of policy planning at the office of the Secretary General at NATO. She sat down with Monocle's Andrew Muller and the Foreign Desk team to discuss how the alliance's priorities have changed since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Andrew began by asking her what benefits arise from attending the Munich Security Conference conference. I think the Munich Security Conference is that place you come to every year to just hear what everybody else is working on, what people are thinking. So you check your assumptions, get fresh ideas, network, test the temperature of the room in terms of listening to the high profile speeches, see what are the changes in the main policy messages. So it's a bit of a tradition to come once a year and under, and see where the security, broader European and transatlantic security community is at. I mean, this one obviously has the feeling of a milestone because it was only four days after last year's that, that Russia launched its full-scale assault on Ukraine. Is it possible to explain how much your job has changed in that year? What Was it a thing of what had long been theoretical suddenly becoming very practical or... What change did it make for you? Right. So I think very practically, when it comes to the job that I have at NATO, which is policy planning, surprisingly, I wouldn't say everything changed, right? Because the job remains to look at how the security environment is changing. What are we not thinking about? What are the potential disruptive events? So it remains a function, an horizon scanning function, looking at everything and trying to understand what are the policy dilemmas, the policy choices, the policy implications. So the, the function that I have at NATO hasn't changed. But of course, the, the world has changed mm-hmm. and the entire security environment has changed. And of course, from a NATO point of view, this was a disruptive, deeply consequential event but it wasn't a surprise. It's something that we had been thinking about, preparing for, for a long time prior to the beginning of this war of aggression, because the intelligence was telling us that it was going to happen, because in a way, from a military adaptation point of view, NATO really started readjusting the way of, its way of thinking uh, when, when Russia illegally annexed Crimea in 2014. So in, it, it's part of a pattern of destabilizing behavior that we had seen. And, and in that sense, uh, yes, of course, there is a before and after because of the scale, uh, the brutality of this war. But in terms of how we're thinking about our job and how we're thinking about our mission, it's less of going back to a drawing board and rethinking everything. It's more about how do we accelerate the adaptation that is already ongoing, how do we keep going, how do we uh, fully 
implement all the decisions that we've taken since 2014 at the political and military level. So in that sense, of course, there is a greater sense of urgency, sense of speed. There is, of course, a general atmospheric of deep understanding that this war is incredibly consequential when it comes to the European security order and ultimately, I would say, even the rules-based international order. And all of that, of course, plays a role in shaping our thinking. But it's not as if we started perceiving the security environment as more dangerous and more fragile and more unpredictable only on the 24th of February. Unfortunately, that trend had been playing out for a long time before. I just want to go back to that remark you made about things that we're not thinking about or things that we're not looking at. How big a danger is that in the context of there being a very big thing we obviously have to pay very close attention to? I think that is always a risk, and that's why in different uh, organizations, governments, you have functions like policy planning or like foresight. It's obvious that we're spending a lot of political capital, energies, and resolve on on responding to Russia's aggression against Ukraine. That's absolutely our priority, and it's the right thing to do. But of course, you don't live in a world where you have luxury to only focus on one issue, one threat, one theater, no matter how big, big, extensive, and impactful that might be. So it is a risk. I think it's a risk that we mitigate by actively reminding ourselves that there is a big word out there, that threats and challenges are interconnected, that there is a, of course, there is the return of full-scale war in Europe, and that's incredibly, as I said, consequential, but we cannot afford to lose sight of well, the fact that our neighborhood remains characterized by fragility, the fact that there is a nexus between climate change, weak governance, forced displacement, and also produces security challenges, just to name another, another important trend we cannot forget about. So it's really important, and I think as in my job, but really more importantly as NATO, we never shifted focus to only dealing with their, their response to Russia's war against Ukraine. So, of course, that's a priority, but it doesn't mean that we are not continuing to work on innovation. We're not continuing to work on climate change. We're continuing to work on energy security. We're continuing to deepen our partnerships with our partners in the Indo-Pacific region because we understand very well that the two, the two Indo-Pacific and Euro-Atlantic have, are related when it comes to security development. So it's, it's, it's about keeping a balance and not forgetting about everything else that also affects our security. And that was Benedetta Berti Alberti, who's head of policy planning at the Office of the Secretary General at NATO. And do listen out for more coverage of the Munich Security Conference throughout the week here on Monocle 24. It's 16.38 in Tokyo, 8.38 in Zurich, and we'll continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Terry Stiastany, the political journalist and author. And Terry, we're going to start by talking about the Northern Ireland Protocol. Can you believe we're still talking <laughs> we're still, about... I think we've spent quite a few years now talking about the Northern Ireland Protocol and it's still one way not or another. Solved, is it's it? still not solved, But it might be solved this week. It yeah. might be. It might be. Let's see. Um, so, yeah, this is the story which is sort of politically is kind of leading um, a, a lot of the coverage in 
in the UK papers today. Um, of course, we have had a big uh, weekend. You were just hearing from the Munich Security Conference and Rishi Sunak, when he was there, was spending a lot of time talking to Ursula von der Leyen and other European leaders about trying to resolve this issue, which, as you say, has been sort of hanging over us all for, for years now. And there's slightly different angles on, on coverage in the papers this morning. So The Guardian is saying that Rishi Sunak faces a revolt by more than 100 Tory MPs over the protocol deal. Now, this is uh, the European research group, the sort of Eurosceptics within the Conservative Party who are saying they don't want to give the EU any kind of control over Northern Ireland at all. Um, And, of course, the DUP within Northern Ireland are sort of concerned about this and they have been not working with the Northern Ireland Assembly and and shut everything down. But I would just say... bit of caution about some of these reports because you're getting very different reports coming out of different camps so um, the Times here is saying Rishi Sunak ready to defy the DUP in, in Northern Ireland over a Brexit deal and sort of push a deal through despite objections. These, this kind of line of saying you know there could be a hundred Conservative MPs rebel now this is being said by um, James Dudridge who is a former Brexit minister but he's also a close ally of, of Boris Johnson um, and he was the man who Boris Johnson and told last time that he might run for prime minister. Yes, yes, I'm definitely up for it. I'm definitely running for it. So, you know, he may have a tendency to, to overstate uh, the extent of the rebellion, I think. here. And of course, I mean, Johnson is just muddying the waters here. Yes, there were, it was a strange sort of semi-intervention by Boris Johnson over the weekend where, you know, sources close to Boris Johnson were sort of muttering that it would be a great mistake um, to drop the law that his government was sort of halfway through bringing in to to say that Britain can just override the Northern Ireland Protocol unilaterally. Now, a lot of people said that really isn't a good idea, that is going to breach international law, that is just going to upset everything. But, you know, people on his side are arguing, well, we need to keep this this bill there and, and possibly put it into law. And at the moment, it's all sort of paused. Um, but, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see what, once, if we actually do get a deal, possibly later on in the week, um, you know, exactly how much the DUP in Northern Ireland object or how much uh, the Eurosceptics do object because you kind of think, well, if there's actually a deal on the table that could resolve this, what will the appetite be for for a further rebellion on on possibly some smaller points? Yeah. Turkey, of course, still dominating headlines. This time we're looking at the Washington Post, uh, which is talking about Antony Blinken's tour of Turkey and 100 million more US dollars in aid. Yes, this is interesting because um, obviously so much uh, international diplomatic effort going on at the moment and this visit according to the Washington Post um, by Anthony Blinken was uh, planned a long time as these things were before uh, the earthquake and he took a helicopter tour over southeastern Turkey and the Turkish foreign minister accompanied him and he was partly there to thank all of the um, workers and, and rescue workers who had been helping to try and save people from the earthquake but he sounds really you know quite sort of horrified as you would be after visiting uh, the areas near Antakya saying and it's really hard to put into words when you see the extent of the damage the number of buildings the number of apartments of home that have been destroyed. It's going to take a massive effort to rebuild, but we're committed to supporting Turkey in that effort. Uh, And do you think that this latest tranche of aid is at all linked to the fact that, uh, of course, the US and other NATO countries would like Turkey to change its position on Finland and Sweden joining the alliance? I I don't think you can sort of tie the aid directly to that. I mean, obviously, the 
this this earthquake has been so severe and and the problems you know that the country is facing and and those cities are rebuilding are so much that I think there would be you know substantial amount of of aid in any case. But obviously, you know, the other significance of this visit is you know this is um, Anthony Blinken's first visit to Turkey and uh, haven't had a, a U.S. visit uh, at this level there in in a while in a couple of years. Um, and so you know trying to you know try and smooth things along a bit it would obviously um, be helpful and I think you know showing this sign of international support regardless of, of the politics of the situation you know is, is the kind of thing that that tends to tends to help ease these things along yeah uh, finally let's go to this uh, Jeff Koons exhibition and the absolute disaster that happened there yes this is a I, I love this story um, so uh, there was a, an art exhibition an, an art fair in Miami um and I know you, you, I'm sure when you've been at things like that, you often think, oh, yeah, I must be careful with my, my arm, my gestures, my, my wine glass, uh, whatever. Somebody standing next to a Jeff Koons balloon dog um, sculpture, which was value, valued at $42,000, looks like a balloon, blue, made out of glass. Um, somebody apparently poked it, tapped it, said, look, this looks just like a balloon. <laughs> and the, the balloon dog sculpture, as not surprisingly, fell to the ground, smashed into pieces, uh, is now worth, of course, uh, absolutely nothing except that some people at the art gallery believe that this was a kind of a stunt or some kind of um, site-specific particular art um, you know deliberate deliberate piece of performance art uh, and so this, it was caught on camera and somebody even um, offered to to buy the debris of the smashed work and to you know to sell the video of the video <laughs> of, the, of the broken artwork as, as a piece of as a piece of art in itself well of course because Coons did many of those balloon dogs but there won't be one as original as the broken well, one. Well, apparently <laughs> this is a limited edition, but there are still there are still seven hundred and ninety eight of them left, and this is a relatively small one. And fortunately for the person who broke it, who doesn't have to pay for it, it was insured. But this was a forty centimeter one, and not as big as the 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 one of the ones which costs I think you know fifty million dollars or something, a much much larger one. So just as well, Terry. Thank you very much indeed. That was Terry Stiastony there, and this is the Globalist. <laughs> UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Well, it's time now to talk aviation with Monocle's travel correspondent, Gabriel Lee. Hello to you, Gabriel. Hello. Uh, Air India has just broken some aviation records. Tell us more. Yes, Air India has placed uh, an incredibly enormous order for aircraft across uh, both the major manufacturers. So Boeing and Airbus kind of got an equal share of this. And that's partly because they want the aircraft as fast as possible. And, and no one manufacturer could get it to them as, as fast enough, really. So they ordered 470 new aircraft, which, uh, which sets various records and sort of marks what everyone hopes will be a turning point for Air India, which has been kind of 
a big mess, to say the least, for many years. Uh, it's been government-owned until a couple of years ago when Tata Group uh, purchased it. So they're, they're on this sort of big uh, turnaround plan. They're trying to make it a, a great global premium carrier again. So this is sort of a big a big step in that direction. And of course, it's going to affect countries beyond India. For instance, there'll be a lot of jobs created here in the UK. Right, yes. Yeah. So when, whenever you get a, a multi-billion dollar order uh, from, from an aircraft manufacturer like this, you're talking about uh, a lot of money going to the countries that make their aircraft. And of course, the UK is part of the Airbus uh, uh, supply chain, companies there making aspects of, of aircraft. And uh, yeah, it's great news for for Airbus and uh, and for Boeing as well. And, uh, you know, it, it, you could see that because President Biden, for example, announced this order uh, on behalf of, of Boeing. You know, the, the, that's how big a deal this was. Mm. Are there enough pilots in India and indeed worldwide? I see that the FT's got a, a, a piece about the fact that there is a shortage of staff. Right. Pilot shortage is is one of the main issues for, for aviation right now. Um, it has a lot to do with the, the sort of sudden downturn and sudden spring back of, of demand during the pandemic, of course, uh, when in, in many cases, airlines were already maybe looking at, you know, growing aviation markets and, and needing to fill a growing gap of, of well-trained pilots, because it takes time to, for, for pilots to get trained and able to fly these aircraft, especially for a captain which you need a captain on every flight, right? Uh, and this was nowhere more pronounced than in the U.S., where where a lot of uh, senior captains were encouraged to take early retirements, basically, when it looked like you know things had fallen off a cliff. And then about a year later, suddenly there's there's all sorts of demand for flying, and uh, and they've had to really uh, raise pay in the U.S. Especially, this is the most pronounced, but it's happening everywhere where everybody needs more pilots. It's, it's a great time to be a prospective pilot or a pilot in training right now, actually. And of course, it's really impacting on the low-cost airlines because those are the ones where pilots are less likely to want to work. Right, and and it's also the the fact that you know low-cost airlines are are seeing that they have to raise their salaries for pilots now. So you know, low-cost airlines are all about having low costs. That's that's the idea that they that they spend less on their operations, and uh, and one big part of of spending at an airline is is paying your staff. So uh, now they're having to all across the board, and but especially in the U.S., uh, raise pay for all pilots, including for those at, at budget carriers and those on small regional airlines. Uh, so so great for pilots. Tricky for some airlines to make their cost structures work now under this new regime of m- much higher salaries, basically. And so does this mean that air travel worldwide will increase? We will the consumer, the traveler, be the loser. I would imagine so. I think you've already seen something to that effect. Fares going higher, especially sort of closer in. I think it's still figuring it out, figuring itself out the market. But but I, I would expect that we see prices continue to rise alongside prices of just about everything else. But I think you know many are saying that the, the days of the sort of ten euro fare are, are are over. I don't know if that's completely true, but we, I think we'll certainly see many less of those. Mm. Uh, and of course, it's not just pilots whose salaries are going up or who want their salaries to go up. It's airport workers, and in Germany, they're particularly dissatisfied. As anybody who was trying to get to or from Munich this weekend can testify to. Right. Yes, and I, I believe it was at seven airports that operations basically came to a standstill when the the union for airport workers. Uh, called a, a massive strike, and they're looking for something like 10%, 10.5% pay increases. Not uncommon, as you say, to see this all across various industries and, and various aspects of the aviation industry too. Uh, costs are going up for everyone, and and, and including the workers. So, uh, yeah, it caused chaos in in Germany, and um, I think this is also something we may see more and more of, especially in those countries that are are more prone to these kind of strikes. But uh, now it seems at least things are back to normal. It was. 
it was sort of a weekend of chaos. And then as it, from what I can tell today, the departure boards look relatively normal. Mm. I mean, this is different from the pilot strike uh, that, that Lufthansa and Eurowings had late last year, because the, the airports are, 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 are government owned. These are public sector workers. Right. Yeah, it's true. And uh, of course, they know that <laughs> they have the power to, to stop all the flights, not just at one airline, but but for everyone. And so that it's going to be felt across the society, right? So it's uh, it's definitely making a strong statement. Gabriel, thank you very much indeed. That was Gabriel Lee there. And this is The Globalist on Monocle 24. Now it's time to talk BAFTAs with Monocle's Laura Kramer. Laura, first of all, the BAFTAs, what does it stand for? It's British Academy Film and Theatre. Yeah, that's close enough. Let's just go with that. I like your interpretation (laughs) of it. It's a celebration of British film. Uh, It was a very exciting night. Richard E. Grant hosted it. And I know you wanted to bring up Richard. Well, he's a friend. We'll come back to that, Okay, exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But who were the big winners? So the big winner was uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. It's a German production, a a film in German about the horrors of war, specifically World War I. It's an adaptation. It won seven awards, including Best Film, and it actually broke records because it is the biggest foreign language film to win this many BAFTAs. So it also, um, the, um, the director and producer also paid tribute to those fighting in Ukraine, saying, talking about the horrors of war and saying how important it is to, to recognize that at a time like this, specifically around the one-year anniversary of the, of the invasion of Ukraine. Another big winner was the Banshee of Inisherin that won four awards, including both the Best Supporting Actor and Best Actress. Best Supporting Actress, excuse me. Elvis also won four awards. So yeah, those were the big kind of films overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I mean, this obviously has has a bearing on who's going to win an Oscar. That's right. Yeah. And I think especially in the acting categories, we saw Kate Blanchett win for Tar for Best Actress. And we also want, uh, saw Austin Butler win for his uh, portrayal of Elvis. And people think, well, now you've got the sags around the corner. It's basically a shoe-in for them for the Oscars. And they use the platform and their speeches to kind of make a last plea to Oscar voters as well. Yeah, yeah. Now, big surprises? There were some big surprises. One of them is that the the wrong person was actually accidentally <laughs> called out. Whoopsies, we had a Moonlight 2.0 um, <laughs> uh, thing happen, basically. The error happened when the CODA actor... Uh, uh, to- uh, Troy Katsur. He had won Best Supporting Actor at last year's ceremony. He was up there with a language, in- a sign language interpreter. And we don't know where the mix-up happened, but basically the sign language interpreter said Carrie Mulligan had won Best Supporting Actress. And it was kind of awkward. The thing is, that segment had been pre-taped. And when it w- went out to the audience, to the the viewing audience at home... 
there was definitely, you could see the delay, there was an awkwardness in the audience, and I think they all thought they could get away with it, but the truth is, it was so clear that there was confusion happening, and actually, I had some friends who were at BAFTA, and they were telling me that they were being encouraged not to talk about it and not to put it out. They were being told by the PRs there that, oh, it's only here, nobody else knows about it. Oh, sorry, The Guardian had already live-tweeted the whole thing, so (laughs) nice try, though. (laughs) Uh, Lots of, yeah, lots of PRs trying to Squash that story, I, I would think. Uh, funny, funny. Um, so, uh, before we went live, mm. you told me that there's a party at Colin Farrell's house that yes. I might be interested in. Yeah, no, so this, this came out when Jamie Lee Curtis and Anya Taylor-Joy came on stage to present outstanding debuts by British writers, directors, and, and producers, and they were basically letting them know what happens in the showbiz world since their debuts. Jamie Lee Curtis said that there's a secret WhatsApp group that's run by Emma Thompson, that everybody is a part of. And then Anya Taylor-Joy said that there is a book club that even you're not a part of, Georgina. (laughs) We also have a show business book club. Uh, We meet the first Monday of every month at Colin Farrell's house. But don't lie and pretend you've read the book. He checks. (laughs) Well, that is sound advice. Never lie at your book club. No, I think you need to get back into the showbiz career, back on stage, because we need you. I need to come to Colin Farrell's house with you. (laughs) (laughs) To that book club? Well, I haven't been to that book club, but I can tell you, we were talking about Richard E. Grant earlier, that that I have spent time discussing books with with Richard and various other people. There was one memorable occasion uh, at his house. He lives in Richmond, which is about as far away as you can get from where I live in northwest London. (laughs) Uh, And we were there uh, as he's from Swaziland, I'm Zimbabwean. We were there with Harry Hook, who is uh, originally from Kenya. And Harry, of course, directed Lord of the Flies, but he also um, did the little, uh, I think, uh, the hugely underrated film, The Kitchen Toto, which is one of the most moving and affecting films I have ever seen. So the the three of us are there, along with my brother, who's a writer too, uh, and um, John Hurt, who I'd never met before. Uh, And it turns out John had lived in Kenya. This is obviously before his his death. He was there with his wife, Anwen. And um, it was the most extraordinary evening, just talking mostly about African literature. But for me, the kind of funniest thing about the whole thing was trying to get back from Richmond late at night, (laughs) so far away, crammed into a tiny little mini with John Hurt. That's got to be one of the most surreal moments of that's, my life. That's going in your memoirs, Georgina. It has to. But, you know, your, your good mate, Richard E. Grant, he's just getting a lot of praise and applause for what a great job he did as a host. Charming, effervescent, just Richard E. Grant. I mean, he, he really is fabulous. Yes. Um, he's, he's, I mean, his wife died recently yes. and he's had to kind of... Um, when, when he was nominated a, a year or so ago, I think it was a year ago, uh, for an Oscar... Um, he absolutely grabbed that moment, didn't he? And he was he was kept filming himself, kind of dancing about with glee and just not trying to be cool about it. And I think that's why people love him. I interviewed him for that, and it was so great and refreshing to see that passion and that energy because so often they do play cool. I yeah. loved that he didn't. Yeah, he leaned into the geek. Yeah, absolutely. If people want to hear an interview with him, of course he's been on Meet the Writers. But I should warn you, Laura, never go into a garden with him. Um, he's he's one of those hyper smell people I think there's probably a word for it um, but he, he uh, we went for a walk once in Kew Gardens and he was just running from plant to plant shoving his nose in them and <laughs> breathing it in and just like exclaiming about it's no surprise that he actually has a perfume it's called Jack um, and he's very into his um, olfactory senses I think that's the word I was looking for
Oh, not surprised at all. Nothing to sniff at. Laura, thank you very much indeed. That's our own Laura Kramer there. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Christy O'Grady, Marcus Hippie and Laura Kramer. Our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Andre Nikolai Pamintuan. And our studio manager is Adam Heaton. After the headlines, there's more music on the way and the briefing will be live at midday in London. I'll be with you throughout the day with some sharp programming and some great music. And of course, The Globalist returns at the same time tomorrow. And if you want to have a quick pick from our archives, Sally Hayden was on Meet the Writers yesterday. Very, very good book about refugees, why they flee and the conditions in which some people are kept. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.